0: Welcome to the Pivot Fund Pod, where we hold conversations that disrupt journalism and philanthropy. My name is Zuri Berry, and what follows is a previously recorded conversation on developing a strong board of directors. Sponsored by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, this conversation is hosted by the founder of the Pivot Fund and its chief executive officer, Tracy Powell and features board source affiliate and nonprofit consultant Glenda Hicks, as well as Josue Rojas, an artist and former publisher of El Tecalote, the longest running bilingual newspaper in California. Here's Glenda.
1: So we have a couple of questions that we can dive into and just see where the conversation takes us. Josue, any particular area you wanna begin with or should we just work our way down the list?
0: Uh, Let's work our way down the list. I think that'd that'd be excellent. Sure.
1: Okay. Okay. So one of the things that we get asked often is, what's the difference between an advisory board and a board of directors? And so what we like to say as consultants, when we're working with nonprofit organizations and how we like to explain that is really in the context of those legal responsibilities and obligations in terms of The board of directors having that legal fiduciary responsibility to govern the actions of the organization and the advisory board is really your go-to group of folks that can really help you think through some thorny issues or help you to start or kick off a campaign if you're doing a capital campaign for example But they tend not to have that legal liability. And in fact, we try to encourage organizations to refer to them as advisory councils, for example, instead of advisory board, which still work in progress (laughs) to get organizations to to move away from that well-known comfortable term of advisory board. But it really helps to differentiate between who has that legal responsibility and who's giving you advice to help you with different issues that arise relating to your organization, where you might want to have a go-to expert who's not necessarily serving on your board of directors. Josue, have you worked with advisory councils in that regard in the work that you've done, either as board member or as executive director?
0: Yes, uh, as a matter of fact, and I think that's a really excellent definition. I feel that, yes, the board, you know, has these you know, fiduciary and uh, duties, right? These duties where, you know, they're really, it's a part of their service. And the advisory board, you know, I think in many in many ways, it could be someone that's building up to a board. In, in, in many cases, you want to build your board. And so I think it's just a really great um, space. And also, you know, executive directors really have no, there is a lot of need for a lot of counsel. You know, there's a lot of need for, uh, you know, cuddling up and having some t- thought partners. And so an advisory board can really be incredibly helpful uh, just to have some people to huddle with uh, as you develop, as you, you know, talk through ideas and develop some strategies and as you prepare to get proposals for the board and, and things of that nature. So they're distinct, but they're related. And so that's a really great question
1: yeah, and it and leading into this next question is related, but also I see that there's a question from um, a participant uh, queuing us up perfectly, which is, how do I know which one I'll need and can or should we have both and why or why not? <laughs> so there's a lot of uh, a lot of questions in there that we had uh, that we wanted to address, and I think it'll speak to this participant's question as well. So, how do you know which one you need? And I can speak from uh, just, you know, the clients I've worked with, but also I'd love to hear, Josue, have you made that decision when you've worked with them as well? From my perspective, I think it's good to have both because you have to legally have a board of directors. I mean, that's one of the requirements in incorporating how many you have is up to your state laws in terms of the minimum required. And of course, when you file for that tax exemption, The IRS dictates that you have at least three, but aside from the board officially needing to be required, it's just great to have a group of advisors that, again, as we were saying, that you can go to and get that that insight, that information or that contact, that connection to someone else in the community that you may not have a direct line to, but that person on the advisory board does. So I think definitely you should have both. And you have to have the board in the beginning, and then you may develop the advisory board, the advisory council over time, as you go, it could just be one advisor, and then you grow that advisory council to more folks that you begin to identify who are willing to assist you in that capacity and who know that serving on the board full-time is just not going to work for their schedule. Um, and so being an advisor might be more conducive to their, their timing of things. What have you seen in that space?
2: I'm sorry, Josue. I just had a a quick follow-up question. So even if you are a small for-profit organization, do you still suggest having a board of directors? What do the laws say about being a for-profit or maybe a really, really small nonprofit? Sure, Tracy, I'll follow that up um, and answer that first, and then I'll
1: kick it back over to Josue. On the nonprofit side, you have to have a board. I mean, regardless of the state that you're in, even though the rules vary from one state to another, I am not aware uh, of any state that doesn't require you to at least have one board member in order to organize your organization. And as I said, for the tax exemption application, of the IRS requires that you have three individuals Beyond that, you know, growing your board is really a function of how many folks you need to get the work done. You want it at a size that's conducive to being managed, but also of a size that you get things done. Because if you're too small, it's just too much to get done by too few people. And if it's too large, it's too many people to corral. <laughs> and I know Josue can t- speak to that more specifically to make things happen. But on the for-profit side, and that's not my strength of expertise. I do focus on nonprofit organizations, but I will tell you on the for-profit side, it's still at a minimum great to have advisors, folks that can help you with decision-making and give you insights and point you in the direction when you're not sure where you need to go. But there's some distinct differences between for-profit boards and nonprofit boards, and I don't wanna go too deep into that unless other questions come up, but at a minimum, Nonprofit board members historically are not compensated for the work that they do. There's an expectation that you're truly volunteering your time. On a for-profit board, they tend to be compensated, especially on the larger companies. Um, If you're a very small, you know, sole proprietor or uh, small corporation, LLC, C corp, um, you may not, you know, need to compensate your board members because it's family-owned type situation, but for the larger expectation of larger for-profits that is the expectation that they're paid. And I really think the crux of what you're asking is about advisors and maybe not even the formality of the board. And it's always great to have that pool of advisors um, at the ready for you to turn to and ask questions of. And then the questions of what is their authority and what is their legal responsibility becomes another question. And that's when the formality of the board structure is really key because who is legally liable and who is making the decisions.
0: Oh, Soy, what has been your experience? I just really want to, you know, emphasize, I think that was just a great, excellent answer, but I just really want to emphasize, yes, you know, Glenda said the idea of how many people do you need to actually get this work done? And I think that's, Kind of tailor made to the uh, to the organization, and I think you know some newer organizations may really need to focus on compliance. You know, and compliance I think is a big word. You know, for nonprofits, we really have to figure out how you have to get your taxes done in a very specific way. So you need someone that's going to really be an expert along that. I particularly worked with a legacy organization, so we had some of the founders on, on the board, and so you know some of the new organizations versus some of the uh, more legacy organizations may have. A different presence on that board. I think you know you're going to want some folks that are really specialized in certain types of skills. You sure? I think one goal, or at least one uh, aim, is always to have everyone on the board to be knowledgeable of fundraising. You know, you want someone on there that's going to be legal. You know, have some legal understanding and help you meet those goals. Certainly, someone with some nonprofit experience, someone with some budgeting under their belt. I personally really was on the side of trying to innovate. And so I really want someone on there knowledgeable of tech, for example, and the tech industry so that we could expand the organization's presence on that realm, but also within the technology of what we use. So I really do feel that it really, again, is, uh, as Glenda said, about getting a team of folks that is specific to the work you want to get done. And also you want to recruit along those goals, those aims. Definitely. Absolutely. And I think that's what's what's really a critical
1: point here is that diversity of skill set that you're referencing, Josue, that you want on your board, because the board is leading the organization in terms of the strategic vision and the direction and the governance, and you need that diversity of skill set. So we tend to talk about looking for the person with the expertise in in, in law or in finance or in IT, as you said, in HR and so and you want that on your core board to help you make those decisions those 30,000 foot level decisions as we call them so that you're setting the direction of the organization but it's not too terribly different either from the advisory board or the advisory council you want folks with specific levels of skill and expertise that perhaps are not sitting on your board and so that's why you're reaching out to those advisors because maybe you know, your board is at capacity in terms of the number of members you, you are authorized to have sit on your board, or there's no one who's terming out, their term is not coming up for expiration where they're going to roll off the board anytime soon, and yet you still want or need that expertise because of some things coming up. Again, that's where that advisory council becomes very helpful because you can look to those folks and ask for their guidance and get some input from them. So that diversity of knowledge and competency and skill set is very helpful in both groups to your organization. And I think that segues us well into another question we have here, which is how do you know who you should put on your board? You know, so how are you finding them? Who, who were those specific individuals? I mean, Josue has, has named a couple of different disciplines, but how do you really realize You know, what folks are necessary. And I think it comes down to where are you in your organization and in your growth and what it is you're trying to accomplish. And that helps define what you don't have. One of the tools we use a lot is called the composition matrix. And it's really a table where you're taking an inventory of what you have and what you don't have. And you're looking at every person on your board and you're really taking an inventory of what do they bring to the table? What are their skill sets, What are their connections? What is their capacity for giving? And then you look at what you think you need. Where are you going? What do you want to accomplish? What's the next adventure for the organization? And to the extent they don't align, that's the gap. And that gap is what we say are the folks that you need to go out and find to serve on your board and to help the director and or founder in that work, whether you're at the very beginning of your organization and you're really with your sleeves rolled up down in the day-to-day, or you've been around for a long time and you're trying to grow and expand and scale. Josue, so, what have you experienced in that capacity with helping to, to staff your board and, and looking at what was missing?
0: Well, I really find that, you know, there's several streams uh, that we can find some really amazing um, talent for the board. Uh, generally, the board itself really is very helpful. You know, I find that they've got some colleagues that say, oh, you know who would be great? You know, someone in academia, there's someone uh, that I've worked with many years ago that is, you know, retired, or there's someone that is building their leadership and um, I can recommend them. And so that, that kind of vetting it, it is already built into something like that.
2: I have a quick question Glenda. Uh, yes. where do we find a, a, a board matrix? Sure, absolutely. So
1: the board matrix is a board source has some a sample so that's one place you could look. There's also the National Council of Nonprofits which is a website that has a lot of tools and resources for individuals and organizations that are looking to you know increase their capacity. And so they have some samples there. But at the end of the day, it's really about categorizing the demographic information about your board and literally not, you know, you, you get the name of each person, but then you have them fill out a template that asks them to indicate, you know, their age their race, their gender, their orientation, their abilities or disabilities, whatever is relevant to your organization. Uh, So keep in mind, you know, some of these questions aren't things you can ask in terms of a job application, but in terms of being intentional about constructing a board that's representative of the communities that you serve and the services that you render The board collectively decides what types of things are important to us that we should ask of ourselves so that we can identify what our needs are. And so you develop those categories and you begin to say we're, and you have a section that indicates defined skills, for example, finance, real estate, construction, architecture, fundraising, human resources and those types of professional disciplines, functional disciplines. But then you also have questions on there about your strategic thinking, or your vision. are you a visionary? Are you a team player, team builder? Are you a leader? Do you have leadership skill sets? How do you define yourself? And you may indicate that you just want the board members to select their top three, because you may have 10 or 15 things on there. And The key is to see where you are the strongest so that you can identify where you're the weakest. So, you don't want everyone checking every single option. It's really how they see themselves as their top three or four skill sets. And then you begin to further narrow that down into maybe their capacity to give. Do they have the capacity to bring in resources? Are they connected to folks that provide funding, who give out grants? Or such as foundations? Are they connected to high-wealth individuals? Do they have the personal capacity to give? Because organizations, nonprofits, they want every board member to show that they've got buy-in, that they're committed, and the best way to do that is to make a personal contribution. So your organization should be among the top one to three that they're giving funds to as a charitable donation. So that matrix becomes a checklist of all these different demographic and characteristic and questions that each member fills out and checks the boxes for. And then you look to where you're going. What do you want to accomplish? And you begin to populate these columns with prospective board member names. So if you already have a short list of people that you're considering to bring on your board You would put their names in the columns as prospective board members, and you begin to check the boxes for what they bring to the table, which you would have ascertained through maybe an application to serve on the board or various meetings and phone calls you've had with them to cultivate that relationship. And you find out how they measure up, if you will. And then you look at where you want to go and what you need to accomplish. And you identify, well, in order to accomplish this goal or this strategic item in our strategic plan, these are the skills that we need. And you look back at that matrix and you compare what you have currently to what you might be able to procure in terms of your potential prospects and then what you're still lacking. And that further informs you on where you need to look and who you need to bring in. So the matrix is... That cross section, that intersection between what you have and what you need.
2: Thank you for that, Josue, Did you have anything to add?
0: I just, for I just want to say I fully agree with uh, what Glenda just you know stated. But in recruiting, in many ways, uh, you know, when these people say that, uh, do what you kind of love and you'll find uh, you know some like minded people. I feel that in many ways, as we are doing the work in the mission. Of the organization, you might turn around and see someone that, for example, the the organization that I was working in had a lot of dynamic events, you know, fundraisers and events and art exhibitions and openings and things of that nature. Many people would find their way uh, wanting to be a part of such events. And so I think within the work, whatever, you know, the mission of the organization is, there are people that are already supporters, there are people that are already, you know, supporting the work. And I think it, not in every case, but in many cases, it helps to look around and see who's there already kind of supporting. Uh, you might have a gem there that's highly talented or that um, has a skill set that, um, that you may not know about, particularly that could you know, support the, the the work of the board.
2: I'm going to ask this question of Josue, and then, Glenda, you can chime in, too. And then I have a question from the Q&A. What happens when you ask someone and they don't get back to you?
0: I would, I would, you know, gently, gently persist and, you know, these things are in seasons and sometimes in cycles and maybe check in the next season and see if people are in a different space and different capacity, but really, truly just kind of keep those, keep those options open because I think it, in many cases, it's not about a lack of desire to support, but of availability. And so I think it's... um, it's about keeping that, uh, that bridge open and keeping those uh, community connections really flowing and let people really know what you're up to. You know, it, it just keep communication flowing. People say, oh, look, this is a really active organization. This is a really active, you know, this is a really active group of individuals that are really about what they're doing. And so people can really stay excited in that way. And so I would just say, you know, don't take anything personal and just keep those communication uh, flowing and check in, um, check in, you know, at a later date.
2: Thank you for that. Linda, you have anything to add to that? I echo it.
1: That's absolutely the case. It's, very, it's critical that you remain engaged with people and you keep them aware of what you're doing because that makes it easier to attract them to serve with you when they already know what you're doing and that you're doing well and that you're having an impact and you're making a difference because you're keeping them informed throughout the time that you're waiting for them to become available. (laughs) And so all the good things that you're doing and what's happening and you're maintaining that relationship. And from an official standpoint, we call that cultivation. That's how you're cultivating folks to serve on your board. You're aligning them with your activities. You're keeping them informed. You're staying connected and understanding when they're going to free up. Maybe they're rolling off another board or they're you know, their work situation has changed or whatever the case is. And so that's exactly what we term that step that all those things Josue was just itemizing. And and it's a process and it takes time. You know, most people think you can just go ask someone to serve on your board and they'll say yes in the moment, which is why you get the response that you just said that framed your question. You know, they either don't get back to you or they wait, they say no at that time, or they say maybe, maybe. And it's because it's a cold request. There's there's not necessarily any relationship there between you and your organization and that individual. And so that cultivation is crucial to the process. Thank you
2: for that. So we have a question from the Q&A. So they, the person asks about specific steps to recruit and create. Does, does it include creating and announcing your board? You've gone over a couple of the steps already, but I think answering that question about Making an official an official announcement. Should we have open application processes, and how do we make sure that the makeup of the board doesn't alienate some of our audience?
1: Okay, so a lot of questions there. We'll yeah, start. <laughs> we'll start with the steps. We'll go back to the steps piece and work our way up to the the composition and alienating others. Uh, yeah, we have sub- covered some of these, but. The one thing that I heard that we haven't spoken about is the actual call for people and actually posting an announcement or having an open application. So I, I'll love to hear how Sways take on some things they've done, but I'll just tell you from a consultant standpoint. You know, there's a lot of boards out there where you can post that you have an opening or that you're looking for board members. Volunteer Match is one such website. They tend to look for folks who want to do hands on volunteering in terms of you know physical things at an organization but they also have an area where you can post opportunities for board positions uh, linkedin of course has a nonprofit platform and it's a way for you to mine for folks to serve on your board but also to be able to promote that you're looking for board members there's some other national organizations i believe board sources website even has some organizations listed that allow you to post that you're seeking board members, but certainly on your own website to have it as a, an option to, to indicate that you're looking for board members or that you accept applications throughout the year. Again, so that you can have a pipeline ready of people you've already vetted and had built a relationship with. And then when it's time for you to bring them on board, you've already done that legwork up front. So, certainly, you can post it on different sites, post it on your website, make sure that it's in your newsletter um, that you send out so that people are aware that you're looking and to look to different community organizations. For example, the United Way. I know here in Metro Atlanta, they have a very robust board development program where they train folks to serve on boards of nonprofits. Uh, So, that's an avenue. And then leadership programs. I'm sure those abound throughout the country here in, in the Metro Atlanta. You know, the counties have leadership programs. Some of the cities have leadership programs. The state has a leadership program. And so that's a great place to find people who are interested in getting involved in their communities.
0: Josue, what
1: are some of the things you all have done in that
0: regard? I really feel that, yeah, I think the idea of diversifying those streams is brilliant. Because it's very exhausting to constantly be on recruit mode, and I think as a nonprofit uh, leader, I feel I felt like I was constantly a baseball coach scouting for talent for every almost every aspect of what we were doing, right so you know looking for young journalists, looking for people within our field, looking for you know fundraisers and and just talented folks in every way. and so we hadn't tried this in the organization that we were, but the idea that than to put forth of putting out a call on different volunteer boards and certainly with nonprofit uh, board members are volunteers so I think it's brilliant to to recruit you know uh, on this level and so putting the stream opening that up and having that for example like you said on the website I think could be a really brilliant idea and just to constantly have that stream of applicants coming in would really help so I would say, Yeah, the idea of accepting them throughout the year is kind of a brilliant, brilliant take. And I would urge young and developing organizations to really uh, think about that. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, and your point about it was exhausting is so true. (laughs) It's exhausting building an organization and running it and being the founder, being the executive director. And so the extent to which you can alleviate some of that by putting some things out there as tools that can have people come to you. I can just imagine how that would free you up <laughs> and take off some of that pressure and burden. So I keyed in on that word exhaustion. <laughs> just wanted to amplify that. Yes, um, Tracy, I also want to go back to that question about the,
2: the folks.
1: Can you rephrase it again or yes. state the question again?
2: Oh, so, yes. How do we make sure that the makeup of our board does not alienate some of our audience?
1: Okay. Jose, Suay, I'm sorry. Did you have any encounters or issues with that that you would want to share firsthand?
0: Or um, before I go into the no, look. <laughs> not particularly. I think there's definitely some stuff we want to, you know... The, the board really are the ambassadors. They are the champions. And in many cases, the face of the organization. They're strategic partners. And so we would really not seek to you know, have anybody even on the board to begin with that would alienate any of the partners. I think, I don't know. The only thing that actually comes to mind in that one, and it's not really even board related, it would be if like a fun, like let's say you're in, you are a environmental group and you've got Chevron, someone of Chevron (laughs) or something on your board, that would be a serious conflict. But I I would, I I feel this question about, you know, alienating, it's, it's, I would like to learn a little bit more specifics of exactly how and where that's coming from. But, you know, I would really think that the the, the champions and the ambassadors of the organization as the board should be, um, they should be kind of in line with, I'm going to say the word spirit of the organization, but I think the word we're looking for in nonprofit is mission and visions.
2: And values. So I'll give you an example Josue. So on our boards, we often tout that you need funders. You may need funders on your board to help you raise money for your news organization. So if you recruit a funder or two who sit on your board, they may or may not be in alignment with the community. It might be a national funder rather than a local funder. And so that might create some issues for the organization. Um, and, I, and I say this because I, I, I don't know the, the questioner's specific Concerns, but I can honestly see that as being a possible conflict.
1: Yeah, very good point. A couple of things emanate from this question, as far as the the recruitment process itself. You know, really being intentional is what's critical, so that you're vetting people that have a passion for your cause and that share the same values. So when we talk about that matrix. Those are some of the things that you want to have on there as questions. I just worked with an organization that was very specific in in one of the questions that they had on their matrix because they wanted to know that oncoming board members had no concerns or issues with some of the work they do and some of the populations they serve. And they were very explicit about the question to find out if this rubs you the wrong way. Because if it does, then we're not likely a good fit for you. And so you want to be direct, honest, and clear, and you don't want to sugarcoat things when you're looking at prospects to your board. And you want to make sure, as Tracy said, that their values align with the value statements that you've developed for your organization, so that they feel comfortable living them out, and that the board is really what I we say often is one board, one voice. So individually, you have a voice as you deliberate over different issues. But once you make a motion and you've properly deliberated it and it's voted upon and it passes, at that point, you're one board, one voice. So you walk out of the boardroom having supported that decision and you don't go out and you speak negatively or ill of that decision because it it went through due process and that was the result. Even if you voted against it and that's in the record, you now support it as a, a body. And to Josue's point, because you're ambassadors of the organization and you're not speaking on their behalf, you know, the chair or the executive director is doing that, the founder, but you're representing the organization in the best light. And so when you see these issues creeping up with individual board members that give you concern, that's when the board chair has a responsibility to have a conversation with that person individually and get to the root of what's going on and see if it's things that can be accommodated or addressed in whatever way is necessary. It's a huge responsibility for the board chair to really have a pulse of what's going on around the board table and with each person individually and to have those conversations and not let them just be the elephant in the room because it will affect your reputation, your brand, your ability to garner additional funding, to get more board members, to hire more employees, to get volunteers. It's just it touches everything. So you want to be very intentional with who you're scouting to serve on your board and how much information you can procure and get to know them uh, so that you don't run into these situations. But when you do, hopefully you'd have a process in place and policies that will
2: guide you through how you manage them. Thank you. Thank you. We have a question from Josue's old hunts. Giltigalate asks about your thoughts on suggested board terms. How long should people serve? And also best practices to, to develop an intergenerational board.
1: On average, people serve about a three-year term and they, on average, they serve about two of those terms. Uh, there's obviously outliers on the higher end and the lower end, but that tends to be uh, what we see most often occurring as, as consultants and trainers. Because it gives a person a good opportunity to get embedded in the organization and really understand how it works and to elevate and and move up in the ranks of leadership within that board. But then it also gives you an opportunity to roll folks off and bring on fresh energy, fresh ideas, fresh perspectives, and then at the same time, give those people rolling off an opportunity to serve in other areas and pursue other personal interests they may have. But I will definitely say I have personally seen organizations where people have been on their board and they've never changed them. And the only time they changed them because the person chose to leave for whatever reason, it may not have been a good fit for them, but not because the organization had terms in place. So it's certainly a best practice to put term limits, to define a term as X number of years, two years, three years, four years, and then how many successive terms they can serve. And I say successive because you can serve two successive three-year terms and then be required to sit off the board for at least one year. And then you could come back on, say, after that one year and serve another three-year term. So those are things that we promote as best practices. But what I also tell organizations is you also want what's the right practice and what works well for your organization. So as many as best practices as there are, you have to also look at it within the context of your particular agency to see what makes sense, what you have policies and terms around, and what is working for you to further your mission. Although I will say, I do promote that you have term limits <laughs> because um, I just, after a while, people can become too personally connected to something. And they begin to take this ownership of it as if this is my committee, for example, or this is my organization. And then you start to have the lines blurred between what's best for the organization and what are you trying to accomplish as maybe a personal agenda. So th- those are the kinds of pitfalls that we're trying to avoid when we suggest these kinds of recommendations.
2: Well, wait. do you have anything to add on
0: that point? I would just, yeah, I would, I would just, you know, re up that. I would certainly uh, support that. The idea of terms, I think it'd be, a, you know, it's always a great idea to just kind of be really upfront about those, you know, from the gate and just say, listen, this is a, this is terms for this long, and I think that's kind of a relief as well, you know, in a certain way. But yes, I think that's that's an excellent idea. That just brings to mind for me the idea of continuing you know, evaluations. You know, uh, I think the board have generally as a a practice, the evaluations of, you know, they're evaluating kind of at every meeting, right? What the organization is is sort of doing. There's an annual evaluation of the executive director, but also, you know, that biannual recommendation for a board evaluation. I think those are moments to just, the board should be self-reflecting. The board should be uh, examining themselves. The board should be really thinking about the organism of the board in relation to the organization and also the individual board members in relation to the organization so i think you know the mechanism for that could be things like a retreat things like you know just continuing to have again one of the key things that i'll always you know uh, bring up is communication right so uh, communication within the organization where the left is always knowing what the right is doing and so i think it's really important to to have those moments of reflection.
1: I love the way you said that, the organism of the board as part of for the organization. We often talk about there's two things that a board manages. One is itself, and the other is the executive director. That is who you know, they oversee. And you can't manage yourself unless you assess yourself. So I, lo- I love the way you said that,
2: Sway. I might have to borrow that. <laughs> that was good <laughs> thank you it, it was excellent thank you so much we have a really really good question in the Q&A okay. what is the proper way to get rid of an underperforming board or advisory member I can speak to
1: that okay, I just want to monopolize taking the question first so I, I, I want to okay all right thanks that's why. The first thing is you have to deal with it. That's one of those elephants in the room. That is something that we are asked to help organizations with constantly in the sense of how do I get my board members to become engaged? And so what they're really saying is I've got some dead weight around the table that I want to get rid of, but I I, I can't bring myself to do it. So instead, I'm going to let them stay and we'll just figure out how to get them engaged. And that's not the best approach. The best approach is the direct approach. And that's where I spoke earlier about the board chair really having a tremendous responsibility in that seat. And that is to recognize those situations and to have the conversation with those individuals who are not performing. At the end of the day, they're doing the organization more harm than good. They're taking up a seat on the board table that could be filled by someone else who's ready, willing, and able to do what they're supposed to do as a board member. And a lot of times it's not because they're a bad person. It's just because they honestly no longer have the time or it turned out to be more than they expected because they weren't really told the truth when they were being recruited to serve on the board. A lot of times we're guilty of painting such a rosy picture and saying, oh, it'll only take a couple of hours a month. And then they get on the board and they realize it's a lot more than a couple of hours. and There's a lot more that you're expecting for me to do. And oh, by the way, you perhaps didn't provide an orientation for me and you're not providing ongoing training. So in that regard, maybe the organization hasn't lived up to its responsibilities, or maybe it truly is the individual who's not doing what he or she said they would do. And so in that case, it, it really should begin with the board chair. Sitting down and having a conversation with the individual over coffee or lunch or a Zoom call, (laughs) and really getting to the root of talk to me, tell me what's going on. Let me know if this doesn't work any longer for you. And if there's reasons that we perhaps can do something about as a board and as an organization to make it work for you, is it that you feel like your voice isn't being heard during the meetings? Is it because our meetings that are a time of day that don't work for you? Have things changed in your personal life or your work life that make it no longer good for you? So you're giving them the benefit of the doubt to say something could legitimately be going on with you and we want to address that versus saying, okay, you got to go. You're just not working out. We don't like you anymore we don't like what you say. And that may be the case too, but you still need to have a conversation out of respect and then try to approach it from that perspective. And that really comes back to what Josue was talking about in terms of communication. That's where I have, I do a lot of work with organizations is in the area of helping them communicate with one another, you know, and and talking and things out and respecting each other's voices and hearing the other person. So communication is critical.
2: Thank you for that, Linda. I want to, just to kind of reemphasize something both you and Josue have said j- during this session, that board training, development, recruiting, about all of this, this process is ongoing. It continues. But I want to give people a realistic idea of the kind of time commitment they would have to dedicate to board development. Can you speak to that? And then the second question is, should the founder be the board chair?
1: Okay, on me again. (laughs) Okay. Um, The founder will likely be the board chair, at least in the early part of the organization's life cycle, because it's his or her vision. They're the one who've identified that there's a need and that they want to fulfill that need and they assume that role. But when you begin to grow and you get to some size where you're starting to add staff, and you're actually hiring and paying people, then you'll need to have that reflection and discussion of, do you want to now serve as the executive director and be employed by the organization and let someone else be the chair of the board? Or do you want to remain as the chair and hire someone else to be the executive director? So it depends more on the life cycle And that's a whole nother conversation (laughs) about the founder and founder syndrome and, you know, the founder not being willing to give up the reins. And I think this is a great juncture to actually introduce the fact that, you know, once you file for that tax exempt status and you apply to your state to be a nonprofit corporation, it's your baby because you birthed it. But now it's a public entity. It's a public charity and you're accountable to the public. And so you're no longer able to own it in the way you did before you decided to go public and become a 501c3 charity. And that's very important because you have to begin to separate certain things and recognize, oh, now I'm accountable to the whole community and I have to have a board. And this board is going to tell the executive director what to do. But then the executive director is going to help lead the board in certain areas, and that's why it becomes a board-staff partnership, and the two have to be able to work collectively, collegially
2: together. So that's that's how I would. give that answer? Can you can you reiterate that part? Once you decide to go five hundred one c three, it's yeah. no longer a <laughs> good baby.
1: That's right. Yeah. It they yeah. have an accountability to the public at that point. And you have a level of transparency that is heightened because of that. And so there's, uh, compliance, accountability, transparency. Those become the three main buzzwords of your organization. And there's a lot of folks who have an interest in what you're doing and how you're doing it and who you're serving and where you're taking money from and how you're spending the money and who, you know, what your board looks like. There's a whole level of accountability that comes with that that doesn't necessarily exist at the same level when you're a private for-profit company. Maybe you're a private, you know, individually or family-owned company and all of that is not the business of the world, so to speak. And although there's still levels of accountability um, and people still decide where they want to shop or do business based on your corporate culture and your identity, and your involvement in the community. So that's not to say it's not there, but it's just a different level because now you've got external board members coming in and you've got employees that you're hiring that are looking to that board to provide that leadership and that direction. And then now you carry that out as the executive director or you task someone if you decide to stay as the chairperson. But yeah, that's a big thing that people have a hard time understanding because they still want to hold on to those reins and and run it like it's their personal sole proprietorship or their LLC that they would have run differently had they been a for-profit
2: instead of a nonprofit. Josue, this is an especially critical point as more and more nonprofit dollars flow into the journalism space and as more and more Independent journalists launch their own news organizations. I wonder if you could speak to that point that, you know, you have not only the IRS that are, will be looking at this more closely as more and more dollars flow into this space, but also communities.
0: Absolutely. As community news organizations, there's certainly an accountability to uh, the community that you serve uh, and represent. In many cases, you know, news organizations are the voice for those communities. And I think it's highly, highly important. And so, you know, I think of it as a puzzle piece that there's accountability to the IRS and they're gonna wanna know what's up every year. And there's accountability to the community, which is a very different account system. And so, you know, you need you need to, you know, it, it's definitely a job within itself to keep a good standing with the community by doing excellence in, in, in the work. And, you know, I think the board can really help Serve as young executive directors or developing executive directors. You are uh, just one, but if you can have a different set of eyes uh, within the board, that can be an extremely huge and powerful source of of support. I value that, and I appreciate appreciate that particularly when we were working with the when I was working with a legacy organization. To have that that really helped uh, within within the uh, the board. The other thing that I'll say, it really helps. Uh, just to circle back really quickly to the the idea of, of terms and what do you do to get someone you know that's not really doing uh, their part on the board um, kind of off. I think the board chair, a vigilant board chair, I can't say enough about having a very good and vigilant board chair on your side can really go a really long way. I'll give a sort of a, a sort of a vague uh, experience. Because I don't want to say any specifics, but we had a board member in one of the orgs that was not about their duties, particularly the duty of care. And so the board uh, chair really, you know, said, "Hey, listen," you know, kind of gave me a heads up and said, "Listen, we're going to have a conversation with this person." And after that conversation, they, you know, decided to sort of allow this board member to sort of, you know, sort of diffuse their their services and, you know, essentially come off. And that was just really helpful uh, because. You know, as the executive director, you're, you're, you're preoccupied with, you know, having difficult conversations many times with staff or with community and to have the board sort of help with managing itself really can be immensely helpful. And I just felt in that moment, quite supported. So um, yeah, a vigilant board chair goes, can be very, very helpful. It can go the length in having uh, the leadership feel supported and having a healthy like we were saying, a healthy organism within the organization.
2: Thank you so much for that. In the final couple of minutes of this, this has been a you know a great, great conversation. Thank you both. I want to just add a small little insight. It would be most helpful if the board chair and the ED or founder, whatever you, you name the role, have a weekly meeting because you, the founder slash ED and the board chair really need to have a very, very tight relationship so that you present a united agenda or or united front to not just the the full board, but also the community and staff as well. So keeping each other apprised, making sure you're communicating to each other and, and always in the loop are really, really important, important steps to take in creating a really solid relationship between the chair and the ED. Glenda, do you have anything you want to end on? Josue, the same. Anything you want to end on? Just to
1: say thank you for having me here today. I thoroughly enjoyed this. I thoroughly enjoyed having the conversation with Josue and educating your listeners. And I just encourage them to, you know, stay focused on their mission and to seek out best practices and to get a good council of advisors around them and reach out for help when they need it because there's lots of us out there who want to help them be successful.
2: So I wish them the best of everything. Thank you so much. sway anything you want to add?
0: No, just a second that it's been such a pleasure. I'm really grateful to Tracy for having us and really grateful to Glenda. This has been just really, you know, edifying and really great to touch base on, you know, board, the, the information around boards. And I really think yeah, again, to stay, like Glenda said, stay close to the mission. Uh, let that kind of light the way. And I think people, the right people will kind of join. Yeah, the board is such an immense wealth of, of power and support. And I think, yeah, to really keep that communication flowing and to keep the mission at hand is really, really huge and key. So thank you. Thank you both.
2: Thank you. I one more, one more real quick question, Glenda. How often should advisory boards meet, meet ideally and how often should EDs trying to be in touch with the advisory board?
1: So, an advisory board is going to meet much less frequently than the primary, the fiduciary board of directors. They may likely meet one to two times a year. They're very, they meet as a body very irregularly, and it's more about the ED or the chair reaching out to that advisory council when they need to. And then of course, the board of directors is meeting much more frequently, likely every other month. Some meet quarterly. And then of course, there's many who meet each month with maybe two months off given you know, holidays and summer. But certainly the advisory council is not meeting with much regularity because they're advisors.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you, Glenda. Thank you, Josue. Thank you, participants. I can't impress upon you enough. How important it is to have a strong board to ensure your growth and sustainability. Have a great week and thank you for joining us.
0: See you next Bye. time. Bye. Bye.